1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It was a quick royal visit this past week with a focus on Indigenous reconciliation in the year of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, were in Canada for three days. Newfoundland and Labrador on day one, Ottawa on day two, and the Northwest Territories on the final day. How do Canadians feel about the monarchy these days, and was this a meaningful visit for Indigenous people in Canada? Libby was joined on Wednesday by a panel of experts to discuss, starting with Alison Eastwood, editor-in-chief of Hello Canada magazine.
2: Every year at the the end of the year, we do a a poll of Hello readers, um, uh, you know, specifically addressing who are your favourite royals? Um, Do you agree that the monarchy is important to Canadian identity and to Canada as a whole? So this year... 21-22, 21-22, Charles and Camilla both rose in popularity, which was interesting, sitting at um, number 9 and 10, respectively. The Queen, of course, is still top of the charts.
3: Do you think, will will Charles and Camilla grow on Canadians?
2: <laughs> I think so. I mean, the last time they were here, actually, they, they had a rousing reception, and um, I, I do hope you know, for their sake as well as ours, that they, they do spend a bit more time here because, you know, they, the monarchy has a very deep relationship with Canada. You know, Canada's a very important like, ally to the Crown. The Crown is important to Canada. So, um, yes, I think that Charles and Camilla will definitely grow on Canadians. They may not have won over yet, but um, they will need to visit a little more, I think, to um, sort of shore up that relationship.
3: Now let's go to Peter DiNolo, a former longtime director of communications to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien and Kat Krieger, an indigenous philosopher, traditional teacher and knowledge keeper. Kat, have you been watching the Royal Visit? And uh, I have noted how meaningful it is for some residential school survivors. Uh, Is it meaningful for you?
4: It always brings up a question for me. And I admittedly I have not been watching the Royal Tour. In fact, I haven't been watching anything on a big screen other than emails. Um, but sometimes it pops a question in my hand, what is a royal tour? And what is it they see they are touring? Or do they see us as uh, you know, extension, one of the colonies? Um that's that's what's been going through my brain anyways, is what is it they are touring and how do they see our how do they see our their relationship with us in particular.
3: Peter DiNolo, uh, uh, what do you make of what they're doing and how they're doing on this visit?
5: Listen, my position is that the monarchy is an institution totally out of step with with the modern Canada. It's, uh, it's an anti-democratic uh, institution by definition. You're born into high office. Uh, and secondly, it's a foreign institution. These people aren't Canadians. Uh, and to have uh, the monarchy, the monarch... As the continues the head of state, I think is is an insult, and it's kind of our our last our last act of 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 adolescence as a country is to 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 tolerate this. And if we were uh, serious about being a uh, an independent nation, we would uh, we would uh, get rid of the monarchy. All sorts of other uh, countries, former uh, members of the former colonies have done this, it's, uh, it's past due. And, you know, our history has been one of slowly loosening these, these ties. Now this is kind of the last vestige, and, uh, and we ought to let it go. Kat Krieger.
4: Certainly for a lot of Indigenous people, there is that component of it's a visit from the conquerors. I know that's, uh, I talked to several people this morning, that was one of the things that popped up. Far be it from me as an Indigenous person, considering what many of the Indigenous people went through, to deny anyone of their own heritage there's that, that two sides of me I don't want to see anybody else denied or their heritage or their their connections to their own land or their own people, but certainly don't want it to affect uh, people in other countries and other lands so
3: last 20 seconds to Peter.
4: No, I mean,
5: listen, this becomes a perennial talk, right? Every time a, a British uh, monarch or, or royal uh, uh, alights in Canada, we have this discussion. Maybe one day we'll 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 move out of our parents' basement and be uh, full adulthood.
1: <laughs> Peter DiNolo, a former longtime director of communications to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien and a vocal opponent of the monarchy in Canada, Kat Krieger, an indigenous philosopher, traditional teacher, and knowledge keeper. And Alison Eastwood, editor-in-chief of Hello Canada magazine. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Which professionals do you respect the most? Doctors? Nurses? Teachers? Or maybe the people who govern us, like the prime minister or premier? A new Maru poll measures the top, most respected professions in Canada this year. Frontline workers top the list, with paramedics first at 92 percent, then firefighters 91 percent, and nurses coming in third at almost 90 percent. Among those at the bottom of the list are owners of social media platforms. Libby had a chat with John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion, about the survey's findings.
6: What you do is, if you respect them very much, you get 100 points. If you respect them somewhat, you get 70 points. If you respect them not very much, you get 30. And if you say, I don't respect them at all, you get zero. So when you add up the numerics, not Uh. the percentages, those numbers, that's what you end up with. So collectively, out of an average score of 67.9, they end up at 92, which is, you know, so far off the scale. It's amazing.
3: Well, I, I was wondering where I rank because the, you have two separate categories. Journalists, I'm a journalist, and uh, radio and TV talk show hosts. So uh, I guess I take the average. Journalists are more respected than radio talk show hosts. So uh, one is 58 and one is 54. So I guess, uh, I guess I'd be at 56.
6: Well, Ashley, you're higher, and I'll give you a good reason for it. Oh, well, thank you, you, John.
3: I'm very relieved to hear
6: that. Well, it started, this kind of research for me started back in 1997. I started doing uh, those polls you hear on trust. Those were actually the first ones that I did, and now they carry on. And we found that trust was the most important asset that somebody or an institution or a corporation would have in order to move things along. It trusted what they said. But over the last 20 years that we've seen is a diminishment in trust, and we've seen the ascension of what's called respect, which is trust is part of that, but it's a bigger entity when you come to measuring how people are, are viewed. So the first thing is if you respect somebody uh, or a profession, and that's what you get is this number. But when it comes to an occupation such as a journalist, um, here, here's what you have. You have a relationship. You have a relationship with Libby Snymer. So and it's a long standing one if you've been listening to Zoomer and even before that. Yeah. You know, I go back way before that. So while I may put the occupation at a certain level, I actually put you much higher. I respect <laughs> you. No, 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 but this is true because you, you can see I, you know, there was an old joke that I had somebody said to me, if you had a choice, uh, you know, we just sit with an insurance salesman, you know, flying out to Vancouver. And I said, not a chance. I'd move somewhere else because I'm up to my eyeballs. I don't want to be sold anything. And then they said, yeah, but what about if it was your own insurance salesman? And it would be, yeah, okay, well, I'll sit with him because he's a good person and I don't mind talking to him. The relationship matters. So you are a relationship that we have every single day. So that, in fact, gets you above the, the average that one would give to a particular occupation. Whereas paramedics, uh, nurses, doctors, even pilots, they are the people who we put our lives in their hands. And they have, you know, been at the top of the list for this, which surprised me about it, is this continuing relationship we have with grocery clerks and farmers. This would not have been on any of those lists maybe they'd be down in the 20 list, but not in the top 10 if we hadn't gone through what we did over the last couple of years. So grocery clerks, uh, farmers, those people who are essential to us, I guess you could put them up with firefighters because they're essential, but those people continue to be in the top tier of the 29 that we measured. And I think, again, it's based on relationships that we forged with them during some pretty tough times.
3: I remember previous lists where pharmacists were number one. I'll just
6: tell you where they are there. Pharmacists are six. Um, I've got police at 15. Oh. Um, The occupation itself may be at 15, but the relationship you have with officers obviously makes it go one way or the other. For most people, an individual officer will be at the top of the list or close to it. What are you leaving us with? Well, respect matters. It's the new public equity to get things done because trust, in fact, uh, is no longer at the top of the list that drives uh, your reputation. So when it comes to reputation, it's a good thing to be respected more than anything else nowadays, and particularly for occupation. John
1: Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. He was in conversation with Libby on Wednesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, it's no surprise that COVID has hit the Ontario election campaign trail. We speak with the new scientific director of the COVID advisory table next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back.
1: On Thursday, we learned that two of the four major Ontario party leaders tested positive for COVID and are self-isolating while continuing to campaign virtually. This scenario underscores how pervasive the virus has become since Omicron arrived in the province. According to federal health data out of the U.S., By the end of February, nearly 60% of the population had been infected, including three out of four children. And by the end of April, data showed that 40% of the population here in Ontario had been infected with Omicron. Dr. Fahad Razak is the new scientific director of the COVID-19 Science Advisory Table in Ontario. He joined Fight Back to talk about the state of the virus and what we
7: still need to do to protect ourselves. The level of infectivity of Omicron and some of the sub variants of Omicron that are now spreading, things like BA2 or BA4, or BA5, is just remarkable. It is so much more infectious than the original virus that came out of Wuhan two and a half years ago that it is almost behaving like a completely different entity. And the estimates from the U.S. and Canada suggest, just as you said, that probably the majority of our population got newly infected during this wave.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, the, the data that I looked at said, not surprisingly, that most of the people infected were unvaccinated. But I know lots of people fully vaccinated. And I don't mean two, I mean, three or four shots getting it.
7: Uh, you're speaking to one of them. Oh. So I got Omicron and I am triple vaccinated And I did not get infected at any point uh, during the pandemic previous to this except now. And it came through uh, the mechanism that I think a lot of families have experienced, which is that I have uh, my wife and I have two children under the age of five who cannot be vaccinated yet. There's nothing available to them. There's been waves of infection spreading through schools. They got sick, they brought it home and we both got infected as well. For me, I was more than six months out from my third dose. So I was one of the earliest to get a third dose as a frontline uh, physician as well. I work frontline caring for COVID patients at the hospital. And so we know that the immunity of people after their third dose does start to wane, and especially at six months, has reduced considerably.
3: Uh, Yeah. Um, I just heard from a very good friend of mine. She took a trip and she got her fourth dose, Two weeks before the trip, she came back with COVID, and it's not trivial.
7: It's not trivial. It wasn't trivial for us uh, as a family. It's not trivial for many people. Look, I think that we need to recognize that the vaccines have done an incredible job. I I really wonder if we would have had the absolute worst uh, wave of hospitalizations this time if we did not have the significant protection of vaccination, but still... Many of the people who got infected, including myself, had very significant symptoms. It took me nearly three weeks to recover from it. And that's triple vaccinated.
3: There's been some work on long COVID. And uh, I was a bit surprised. It seems to me that more people are suffering with long COVID than I would have thought.
7: Yeah, really, really important entity. And I think really under-discussed when we talk about hospitalization and ICU as our primary focus. We are ignoring the fact that many people who become infected, who do not end up in hospital, will still develop prolonged and sometimes disabling symptoms because of long COVID. And that includes older individuals, but also younger and completely healthy individuals who really don't have any risk factors that we can see, but yet will develop fairly disabling symptoms weeks or months after that initial infection.
3: And have you heard of cases where people who've had Omicron then getting BA2?
7: So far, it looks like if you were infected in this wave, the chance you're going to get reinfected in this current wave of one of the, you know, the new sub is very low. It's possible. It has happened. But it is still very low. So that if you were infected recently and you're triple vaccinated, the chance you'll get infected again in this wave so far seems pretty low.
3: Uh, Dr. Rozak, what would you like to leave us with, last 20 seconds?
7: Yeah, last 20 seconds, I would just say again, and I think to your question, please take this seriously. Again, this is not a human adversary. It's a virus. It is not done with us. We all want society to continue, businesses, schools, everything else. Do your, do your best to protect yourself as you re-engage and get out there again.
1: Dr. Fahad Razak, the new scientific director of Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Wednesday night, there was a seismic change in Canada's conservative political landscape. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney announced he's stepping down as the leader of the United Conservative Party after he received a 51.4 percent vote of confidence. He told party members, while 51 percent of the vote passes the constitutional threshold of a majority, it clearly is not adequate support to continue on as leader. Why is this significant news here in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada? Libby asked this of Michael Tobe, columnist and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, when he was Canada's prime minister.
8: I think there were very few people who assumed this was going to happen, or at least the turn of events would sort of occur last night the way they did. I don't think a lot of people, I mean, people certainly knew that and conservative insiders knew that Jason Kenney wouldn't get an enormous amount of support as leader. But when I was asked in interviews, uh, you know, over the past week or two, I said the same line that a lot of others have, that from what I gather, from what I understand, and based on the fact that his personal popularity numbers have increased a bit over the past few months, I thought that he would be able to hopefully hit. Privately, somewhere in the high 50s, low 60s, which isn't great, but would have been enough to at least say that, you know, we're getting part of the way back there. We have a long way to go. And so do I or something to that effect. It could have probably worked. 51.4 percent, as you correctly said off the top, is far too low. That's nearly half the, the party doesn't want him to remain as leader and it really, even though his numbers obviously would continue to increase if he continued to perform well as leader, it's a terrible base to start from. Not as bad as, say, what Ralph Klein says when he had a leadership review. He was actually below 50%. But it's a number that's so low that I certainly can understand Jason Kennedy having known him a long period of time that he would be frustrated by this, certainly embarrassed by it, and did the right thing to leave. People saw or thought or perceived that there was some distance between Kenny's leadership and the way the government was being operated. And I think that problem itself just caused a lot of problems, and I think that the issue just got worse during COVID-19 in the way that Kenny handled his leadership. But here's the problem. It's the next leader that's going to be in the biggest position. So whether it's Brian Jean, Daniel Smith, or whomever, they're the ones who are going to have to keep everything together, and that's going to be the difficult stage.
3: Okay. Everything uh, that I have been reading about this suggests that his problem largely, uh, people, uh, they were upset because there was too much in the way of lockdowns and that he uh, is not considered conservative enough. But uh, why would this be significant for the rest of us here?
8: Well, Jason Kenny was conservative enough. I agree with people like Sean Spear and others who worked for the Harbour government a few years after I did, maintaining the fact that Kenny actually ran the most center-right government in this country and possibly the most center-right government we've seen provincially since the days of Mike Harris. I agree with you that during COVID-19, that proved to be an enormous distraction to Mr. Kenny's leadership, and it just basically created sort of an unbalanced routine that, yes, people felt that there were there was too much in terms of lockdown restrictions and otherwise. But I think really it was the reopening of the problems that caused the biggest problem. But going forward, what does it teach? I think that obviously for conservative leaders, whether we're looking at the federal conservative leadership race or we're looking at provincial premiers, I think a lot of them will actually look at this and realize that, again, a consistent key core message is the best route to electoral success and to gu- governmental success as well. To manage a government day-to-day is difficult. It doesn't matter whether you're right-leaning or left-leaning, but the real key to success is that you have to have a consistent message that not only resonates with, you know, grassroots supporters, red meat conservatives, if we're talking about the conservative party or whomever, versus how the general public looks at you and how they perceive what you're doing, what you're proposing, how you're governing, how you're managing, and whether the results actually ultimately make sense. That's why we see Ontario, for example, in the Ontario election, we see Premier Doug Ford looking like he's going to get a second successive majority government in this province and in a very different state and position than, unfortunately, the soon-to-be former Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is in.
1: Michael Tobe, columnist and former speechwriter to former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio. Pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Crystal in Aurora phoned about the state of customer service in Canada.
2: The banks are making record-breaking um, money. They're in the billions. And when you go online, when you have to do something and you want to talk to customer service, you're on hold for a good 20 to 30 minutes. And as soon as they answer the call, it's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the long wait. Like the banks are making like big profits and they don't have enough people for customer
1: service. Natalie in Mississauga also phoned about poor customer service.
7: I usually shop at my uh, neighborhood no-frills, and uh, we always go at the same time, and the same thing keeps happening. We find that one cashier is open, and you end up getting about up to nine people before I, I am the only one that will go and say, could someone get someone, please? Someone else. The poor girl, she's backed up, she's stressed out. And you have all these other kids, girls, whatever, young people working there, taking online orders, yep. filling up their carts for people that are at home. And yet here we are, frustrated, having to go out, having to get our, do our hard work, and we have to stand and, and wait and deal with this.
1: Derek in Markham called about whether Canada should be part of the monarchy, a discussion we had prompted by the royal visit.
5: I think it is time we get rid of the monarchy. We don't need that in Canada. Um, It's about time to get rid of it. I came from the islands, and I know what I went through as a kid. Take me out of school for hours and put me at the side of the road with a small Union Jack in my hand, you know, and they came along in a rover, a Land Rover Jeep with a shade over them. And uh, we don't need that in
4: Canada. It's time to get rid of the monarchy.
1: Jan in Guelph also called about Canada and the monarchy.
2: I really would like to see the monarchy stay, even though it will be different. It will be a younger set of, uh, you know, people. But what about our British pensions? Will it affect that? Huh, I hope not. <laughs>
3: well, I, I, I wouldn't uh, think no, so I'd if like you're to British. See the monarchy
2: stay for many reasons, too many to list. I just think it's wonderful. Of, to have the monarchy. That's all.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Douglas in Port Perry, who phoned about the super high gas prices.
6: I'm on a fixed income. I'm 70 years old, right? Yep. And uh, I have a cottage, as you know, on Lake Scugog. I live in Oshawa, and uh, I'm I'm telling you, I it it's just the price of gas is absurd, just for me to get there and back, and it can't be more than a forty minute drive. I got to go to Toronto tomorrow and visit, uh, and take my ninety eight year old mother out for dinner because she never gets out, and uh, like just to go there and back tomorrow is just, uh, outrageous.
1: Douglas, you're a good son. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me tomorrow on Victoria Day Monday for a brand new episode of Fight Back. And again, next weekend, when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer.